Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen most. If you're looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Well, hi, everybody. Um, Again, my name is Colton Tatham, and I'm Journey Bible Church's West Campus Pastor. Uh, If you're new today or if you're listening online, uh, thanks again just for joining us, uh, just to celebrate God and His ways and uh, just to join us for worship. Uh, Today we're actually going to be concluding our sermon series on the attributes of God. And if you've stuck with us, uh, that's been 12 full sermons. So if you've listened to every every one of them, bonus points to you. Great job. So give yourself a pat on the back. Um, And then next week we'll start something new. Uh, You know, whether it's God's aseity, his wisdom, his power, his presence, his justice, his grace, or his sovereignty, you know, the Bible has really shown us that there are none like God. Now, throughout this series, uh, we've been using A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, as a guide to God's attributes. Uh, However, the last chapter of his book is not actually about any particular attribute of God. Uh, Rather, it's an invitation to the reader titled The Open Secret. Now, whenever I hear the word open secret, I start to think cult. Um, My uh, alarm bells go up, but uh, we'll find that there's nothing um, of that of of the sort whatsoever. Um, So what exactly does he mean by the open secret? Well, to help answer that question, I first want to show you an image. Um, This is a pretty cool image. This is the picture of an impenetrable vault. Um, But it's not just any vault. This is the vault that's owned by the Coca-Cola company. Uh, Growing up, my family took a trip to Atlanta, Georgia, and one of the places we visited was the World of Coca-Cola factory, and it was pretty cool to be able to drink all these experimental flavors of Coke and international flavors that you can't get in your normal store. And along the tour of the factory, this guide took us to this impressive vault door. Uh, It was locked up with these massive steel bars, and of course it has a handprint scanner, and we were told that the vault housed the secret recipe to Coca-Cola, which is still one of the most closely guarded trade secrets today. Uh, There's this comedian uh, named Robert Orban who actually served as a presidential speechwriter for Gerald Ford, and he helpfully explains the difference between an open secret and a closed secret by comparing business with government. Robert Orban observed that the difference between private business and the government is this. The formulas for making Coca-Cola and Kentucky Fried Chicken are still secrets, but the schematics to a hydrogen bomb are available on Wikipedia. (laughs) So, what's the difference? A closed secret is something discovered that's intended to be hidden. 
An open secret is something discovered that's intended to be shared. Unfortunately, many people in the world believe God is like Coca-Cola's secret recipe. You may be able to enjoy and taste and experience God from time to time like a refreshing beverage, but it's impossible to really know God because the real knowledge about God is hidden and locked away behind biometric scanners. If this sermon series has taught us anything, though, it's that God is knowable. And the knowledge of God is not something that's meant to be kept to ourselves. The open secret is that the knowledge of God is meant to be shared with the entire world. If you have your Bibles, let's take a look back at Luke 8, 16 through 18 again. That's Luke chapter 8, verses 16 to 18. Here Jesus says, No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now, the context here, Jesus is speaking directly to his followers Earlier in verses 9 through 10, Jesus told his disciples that they had been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But their purpose was not to keep these secrets hidden behind a vault door. Instead, like light shining from an oil lamp, their purpose was to let the light of Jesus' teachings about God shine forth to those in darkness and to share everything they'd learned about God to others. When it comes to obtaining knowledge about God and His ways, Jesus warns in verse 18 this, "...take care then how you listen." Take care, then, how you listen. He then says, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now, this may sound a little bit cryptic, but here's what Jesus means. Careful hearing produces gain. Careless hearing produces loss. In other words, careful hearing results in better understanding. Careless hearing results in the loss of what has been heard. When we carefully receive, examine, and humbly heed God's Word, it produces in us a greater knowledge of God and a greater desire to do His will. But when we carelessly listen to God's Word, either indignantly with our minds closed and already made up, or distractedly with our minds consumed on other matters, or pridefully as if we understand religious text better than anyone else, in all these careless cases, Jesus says that careless hearers will forget the real truth they just heard. And even what they thought they knew about God will eventually be lost when it comes to the light. So, Jesus warns his disciples, take 
care then of how you listen. This is because the knowledge of God wasn't intended for Jesus' closest followers to keep that knowledge to themselves. The knowledge of God isn't meant for just the holy elites or smart scholars or perfect priests. The knowledge of God is meant to be shared openly with everyone. And the knowledge of God is like light that Jesus' followers are called to shine brightly to the entire world. Writing back in the 1960s, A.W. Tozer asks, what would it take for the church back then and people back then to experience revival? And he writes this, The answer may easily disappoint some persons, for it is anything but profound. I bring no esoteric cryptogram, no mystic code to be painfully deciphered. I appeal to no hidden law of the unconscious, no cult knowledge meant only for the few. The secret is an open one, which the wayfaring man may read. It is simply the old and ever new counsel, acquaint thyself with God. What is the open secret to revival? Tozer simply says, acquaint thyself with God. Get to know God for who he reveals himself to be in the Bible, and you will experience the treasure of revival. In other words, K-N-O-W, no God, no revival. N-O, no God, no revival. As Jesus warns in Luke 8, we must take care of how we listen lest we end up thinking that we know God when, in fact, we don't know God at all. The timeless truth to revival should hardly be a secret to us as Christians, but it is a secret to those who don't know God. The open secret must be shared with everyone, and the open secret must be shared by everyone, because the church moves forward when individuals move forward. Know God, and you will know revival. Tozer's final chapter lists several principles for experiencing personal spiritual revival in our lives. And for the purpose of this message, we're just going to survey five principles of revival. The first principle is simply faith in Jesus. Jesus is the Lord and Savior who sets sinners free, and Jesus is the ultimate reviver He is the Son of God sent by the Father to be the giver of new life. So revival starts with trusting the reviver. In sharp contrast to trusting others, um, a man named Samuel Smiles, that's a fun name, Samuel Smiles, published a book called Self-Help back in 1859. Uh, That actually happens to be the same year that Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species. Uh, His book, though, promoted the idea of self-empowerment and striving to become a self-made man. Throughout the last century and a half, self-help has become a multi-billion dollar industry in America with the profits growing every single year. 
Self-help has been rebranded countless times and in countless ways. Self-help has gone through various makeovers, but it's never really departed from the original vision of Samuel Smiles, who said back in the 1800s, heaven helps those who help themselves. Heaven helps those who help themselves. The founder of self-help couldn't be more wrong. In last week's message, we learned that the opposite is true. Apart from the sovereign intervention of God, we are all helpless to help ourselves. Ultimately, heaven helps those who surrender themselves. Heaven helps those who trust in Jesus for their salvation. So where exactly, though, does Jesus's, or where does faith in Jesus come from? Well, if you have your Bibles, let's look at Romans chapter 10. Uh, first, I want to read for you verses 9 through 10, because they demonstrate what faith looks like, as well as the power of faith. And then I want to read for you verses 16 to 17, which tells us quite literally where faith comes from. So follow along as I read. Verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 16 then says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith requires us to acknowledge that self-help is impossible. In the face of judgment and death, no amount of self-help, self-determination, or self-improvement can justify or rescue a dying captive enslaved to sin. Rather, faith is confessing and demonstrating our submission to Jesus as our ultimate helper. When we cannot help ourselves, we must turn to the Lord and Savior who can. Personal, spiritual revival comes the moment that we surrender ourselves in faith to Jesus. But again, where does faith come from? Well, verse 17 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Don't forget Jesus' warning in Luke 8. Take care then how you hear. A careful hearer is going to hear the word of Christ and it is going to produce a bounty of faithfulness. A careless hearer is going to miss the word of Christ and it is going to produce a bounty of unfaithfulness. In a very literal sense, faith in Jesus comes from knowledge. It comes from receiving and believing in the knowledge of what verse 16 calls the gospel and what verse 17 calls the word of Christ. If you were to ask me, what is the most important thing to know in the whole Bible? I would tell you without hesitation that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is because 
Romans 10 tells us that unless you hear the gospel, unless you know the gospel, then you cannot have genuine faith. Now, there is a difference between knowing the gospel and explaining the gospel. Remember, personal faith comes from knowing the gospel, not from explaining it. A new believer can have the presence of faith because they've responded to the gospel, even if they're still growing in their ability to understand it and share it with others. In fact, our faith grows as our knowledge of the gospel, our dependency on the gospel, and our demonstration of the gospel grows. Here are just a few basic helpful facts just the, the Bible tells us about the gospel. Uh, first off, the word gospel comes from the Greek word evangelion, and that's where we get our word for evangelism. The word literally means good news. So whenever you see the word gospel in the New Testament, it's referring to the good news about Jesus. So what exactly is the good news about Jesus? Well, it's certainly not self-help. Instead, the Bible shows us that good news is something that can be retold again and again in all sorts of different ways. Uh, the New Testament authors describe the good news kind of like reporters from different news agencies. They're all reporting on the same fantastic story, but they retell the good news in their own personal styles. John shares the good news like a personal eyewitness report. Mark tells us the good news like an anchor reading the major headlines. Matthew assesses the good news with a cultural perspective. Luke gives us the peer-reviewed historical account of the good news, and Paul offers us that in-depth theological analysis of the good news. The New Testament is robustly gospel-centered, and the New Testament is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. And although there are countless ways to retell the good news, here's what the New Testament reports all have in common. Even though there's so much more that could be said, at its core, the Bible tells us the gospel is this. The gospel is good news that Jesus is the Lord of all who judges sin, and he is the only Savior for every sinner who believes. The gospel is good news that Jesus is the Lord of all who judges sin, and he is the only Savior for every sinner who believes. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Rex delivered us a message on God's grace, and at the heart of God's grace is his desire to give us more than we deserve. We don't deserve to experience revival. But in Christ, God has made a way for us to respond to the gospel. God has made a way for us to believe. And when we believe in the gospel, a spiritual chain reaction begins to happen inside our hearts. And if we let it, God can use that chain reaction to transform other people's hearts too. This brings us to the second principle of revival. Our first principle is faith in Christ. And our second principle, tied closely with that, is fight against sin. You can know that your soul is being revived when you feel the desire to battle the sins in your life. Whether that means resisting selfish ambitions, 
slothful habits, harmful words, dark thoughts, or shameful impulses, the reason that we fight against sin is because sin is the biggest threat to revival. Turning from sin is one of the first fruits of genuine faith. And turning from sin is something that the Bible calls repentance. Take a look at Romans chapter 6 now, uh, verses 12 through 14. Uh, Here we find several commands warning us about the threat of sin. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now the other day I was uh, listening to a news report, and a report came in that an imprisoned dictator named Hassin Habre had died of COVID at the age of 79. Uh, He was once the ruler of a country called Chad, Uh, It's located in Central Africa, and he came to power in a violent coup in 1982 and ruled over Chad for just eight years. Uh, During this uh, man's eight-year regime, he imprisoned 200,000 people, which was nearly 5% of the country's entire population back then. His prisoners were regularly tortured and abused in ways that defy comprehension. Uh, to put this into perspective, less than 1% of the U.S.'s population is incarcerated today. So in eight years, Hissine managed to imprison almost one in every 20 people in his country. Hissine was tried and convicted for unbelievable war crimes. Ninety witnesses came forward during his trial in Senegal, and many recounted the horrors of the abuse that they experienced with tears. One such terror was that Hissine would order his cronies to force his victims into putting their mouths around a car's exhaust pipe, and then they would run the engine. It's estimated that 40,000 people died in those eight years as a direct result of this dictator's cruelty. When verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign, in your mortal body, or don't let sin back into power over you, the command here is to fight. The command is to fight against giving back any measure of authority or power to sin in your life. Sin is a ruler more heinous than any worldly dictator. In fact, the Bible tells us that sin is what makes it possible for the evil atrocities of Hassin Habre to happen in the first place. When a Christian gives in to sin, it's like a prisoner returning to empower a bad man that Jesus Christ has set you free from. Sin is the biggest threat to shutting down the spiritual chain reaction of revival in your life, so don't give in. As verse 13 puts it, don't present yourself as an instrument for sin. Don't weaponize sin any more than it has already been armed. Rather, 
present yourself to God as one of God's weapons that he can use against it. Fight against sin. Now, God doesn't leave us to fight against sin alone. The third principle of revival is walk with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. While sin may be the biggest threat to revival, the Holy Spirit is the best ally to revival. When Jesus, God the Son, ascended into heaven, Acts 1 and 2 recorded how Jesus sent God the Spirit to each believer to be their ever-present helper. Remember that in Christ, you are never truly alone. While sin may be the kind of spiritual enemy that no self-help book is going to help you defeat, the Holy Spirit is the kind of ally that can overwhelm any opposition. Yet, like any good ally, one of the things that the Holy Spirit longs for is our cooperation. As A.W. Tozer writes, we must practice whatever self-discipline is required to walk in the Spirit and trample under our feet the lusts of the flesh. This means passive Christians will sense very little work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. While active Christians who know they're in a battlefield, they will see the Holy Spirit guiding them into victorious battles against the greatest sins that they face. Each of these five principles we're exploring is connected to a key scripture in God's Word. So let's take a look now at Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 through 25. Here it reads, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If sin is like the cruelest rulers that we can think of, then the Holy Spirit is like the kindest counselor that you can think of. Whether it's a financial counselor, marriage, grief, or career counselor, a good counselor doesn't do the work for you. A good counselor is there to guide you in the work that you need to do in order to reach your goals. The Holy Spirit is the counselor Jesus has ordained to help us reach some of God's goals for our lives on this side of heaven. Two of these spiritual goals are called mortification and vivification. That's a fun word, vivification. Galatians 5.24 refers to mortification, while Galatians 5.25 is a picture of vivification. Mortification and vivification are continual spiritual processes that the Holy Spirit guides believers in every single day. Again, the Holy Spirit isn't going to do the work for you. The Holy Spirit guides us and prompts us to actively pursue these two goals. Mortification is that process of killing sin and killing temptation still in our lives, while vivification is the process of growing into new spiritual life that God has given us. Walking with the Holy Spirit means having an active awareness of these two goals and an active desire to pursue both of them. 
when we become a follower of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we become a new creation. One of the things that this means is that the old sins that we have once indulged have become enemies, and we now must fight against them. We must crucify them. This is mortification. But we also receive new desires as a new creation. God fills us with new spiritual desires that weren't there before, like the desires to pray, worship, and give back to God, and love, forgive, and serve all people, even the difficult ones and learn, obey, and teach his word, and share the gospel, and see other people believe. Your impulse for these new spiritual desires will grow stronger the more actively you turn away from sin and turn to the way of Jesus Christ. This is vivification. So when we talk of walking with the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about some kind of self-discovery journey to find some esoteric mystical vision. And we're not talking about obtaining enlightenment or using some kind of supernatural powers. What we're talking about is the spiritual but ever-present work of God the Spirit to prompt us as believers to turn away from our love for the ways of the world and to grow in our love for the ways of God. Speaking of the ways of God, this brings us to our fourth principle for revival. And this fourth principle is to draw near to God. One of the reasons that we should want to draw near to God is because we understand that God's glory is the goal of revival. Drawing near to God brings us closer to experiencing his overwhelming majesty. In his book, Tozer warns that when we draw near to God, the God we must see is not the utilitarian God who is having such a run of popularity today, whose chief claim to men's attention is his ability to bring them success in their various undertakings, and who for that reason is being flattered by everyone who wants a favor. The God we must learn to know is the majesty in the heavens, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the only wise God our Savior. Knowledge of such a being cannot be gained by study alone. It comes by a wisdom the natural man knows nothing of because it is spiritually discerned. To know God is at once the easiest and the most difficult thing in the world. It is easy because the knowledge is not won by hard mental toil, but it is something God freely gives. But this knowledge is difficult because there are conditions to be met, and, obstinate, and the obstinate nature of our fallen selves does not take kindly to conditions. What are some of these conditions? If we are to truly draw near to God as he really is, then what must we do? Well, first, we must have faith in Jesus, we must fight against sin, and we must walk with the Spirit. The principles of revival are both easy and hard. None can be mastered by study alone. In reality, 
these principles of revival are all gifts that God has freely given, but it's our sin that constantly stands in the way. If God's glory is the goal of revival, our obsession with our own glory, our obsession with our own recognition can keep us from ever drawing near to God. But when you remove yourself as the highest authority of your life, and when you surrender to God as the highest authority of all life, the way will open for you to draw near to God. But for the spiritually rebellious, the lethargic, the discontented person, that way will remain closed. If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we discover an incredible invitation and an incredible promise. Here God's Word says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Spiritual revival cannot be sustained without drawing near to a gracious God. On this side of heaven, there is perhaps no closer way to draw near to God than through prayer. Ultimately, it is Jesus who gives us the confidence to approach God. Jesus also gives us the faith to trust God to act when we pray with faith. Not just anyone, though, can approach the Lord God Almighty. Yet here in Hebrews, we're told that not only can we approach God, we're told that we can draw near to Him with confidence. With respect to prayer, Wayne Grudem writes, we do not just come into God's presence as strangers or as visitors or as laypersons, but as priests, as people who belong to the temple and have a right and even a duty to be in the most sacred places. When we pray, with Christ as our mediator, we enter not into the earthly temple of Jerusalem, but into the true sanctuary, into heaven itself, where Christ has gone to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. If you long for a more intimate knowledge of God, you will discover it through prayer. You'll discover it when God answers unexpected prayers, and you'll discover it when you sense yourself praying more and more to experience His glory on earth as it is in heaven. This brings us now to our fifth principle of revival. Don't just draw near to God. Draw others to God. In ancient times, there was a practice among Christian monks that emerged called monasticism. Often this practice required you to seclude yourself from the world in order to kind of fill some sort of uh, self-imposed religious vow. Uh, some monks even practice lifelong seclusion. While this discipline may have helped a believer to effectively practice the first four um, principles of revival that we've looked at, monasticism falls woefully short of helping any believer experience this fifth principle. It's hard to draw others to God when you'd prefer to seclude yourself from others and not interact with them. True revival cannot be enjoyed selfishly. True revival is enjoyed selflessly. 
True revival means that we must interact with others and we must draw others to God. Jesus actually makes this point clear to us in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Here, saying the great, with the, revealing the great commandment, Jesus says this in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love is the great commandment. First you shall love God, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The God who has given us all things by his Son is the same God who promises to give others all things through us. It is this fifth principle to draw others to God that makes revival a cycle. You see, the greatest act of love that we can give another person is the act of telling them the good news that we've received from Jesus. Giving another person the invitation and the opportunity to have faith in Jesus is perhaps the greatest love that we can show the world. If the knowledge of God doesn't move you, or it doesn't excite you, and it doesn't compel you to share the good news with others in a spirit of love, then perhaps you need to revisit Jesus' words again in Luke 8. Take care then how you hear. For the one who has faith and knowledge, more will be given. And for the one who does not have faith and knowledge, even what he or she thinks that they have will be taken away. Personal revival flows from knowing God, but world revival flows from sharing God. Truly knowing God will lead us to share God with others. And sharing the knowledge of God will lead others first to faith in Jesus when they begin trusting in the reviver, then to fight against sin, the greatest enemy to revival, then to walk with the Spirit, the greatest ally in revival, then to draw near to God, the glory and goal of revival, and finally, draw others near to God, the joy of revival. In Luke 15.10, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As we strive to bring revival to the people of Aletha in this community, in Johnson County, in Kansas City, and to the ends of the earth, let's strive to share in the joy of angels by becoming the kind of people who know God and the kind of people who share God with others. With that, let's pray. Father God, we began this sermon series asking a question. What comes into our minds when we think about you? God, I pray that for all who have heard there are none like you, 
that you would help us all to become careful listeners. God, we pray that you would revive our faith in Jesus, revive our fight against sin, revive our walk with the Spirit, revive the way we draw near to you in prayer, and revive our passion to draw others to you too. God, forgive us for our carelessness. Forgive us for trying to hide the light of the gospel. Forgive us for getting entangled in worldly affairs. God, we are desperate to see your glory and majesty fill this world. So as we carry out the mission of Jesus to advance the church and show the world your love, let us not forget his command to love you first. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all God's people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.